the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Born and raised in East L.A., he joined the Marines and then after service to nation and his discharge, went on to a successful business career with a Fortune 500 company. But the next big step in his life's trajectory took him not deeper into the boardroom, but rather into the pulpit. Joining us now is the senior pastor of Bay Hills Church in Richmond, Pastor Alan Coleman. Pastor Coleman, great to have you with us today. Oh, thank you so much. I'm excited. Uh, you have no idea. what, uh, And we're excited, too, because you have quite the unlikely trajectory, as I suggested in my opening remarks, um, from where you were born and bred to your early days in the military, later on your career in business, and then ultimately to wind up in pulpits all across America. I'm sure that our listeners are thinking, okay, there's a bridge in there somewhere that we're not privy to, but we're going to have you fill us in on the spots we're not aware of. So take us back a little bit about your life in East Los Angeles as a young man. Yeah, I I, I always say this, uh, I'm just the least locked least likely convert with the least likely background at the least likely time. And, um, you know, I, uh, I grew up in East LA, um, in a, in a pretty violent environment, a pretty environment, a pretty violent home. Um, and, uh, I was a participant in that violent environment at one point, you know, I was, uh, knee deep in street culture, gang culture, uh, everything that went along with, with growing up as a biracial, young men um, of Mexican-American descent in East Los Angeles. And so I got my girlfriend pregnant, who's now my wife uh, of 26 years. Um, and uh, uh, for, for whatever reason, God had put it on my heart uh, uh, to not abandon that responsibility, which is how I ended up in the, in the military, uh, s- serving in the United States Marines. That was already an interesting trajectory for me, but that sort of just confirmed it, that life event. It wasn't until later in life that I came to know the Lord, that I, that Jesus saved me. That's the bridge that you're missing that pulled me out of business uh, and pulled me ultimately into full-time vocational ministry. Growing up as a young man in East L.A., biracial, must have been challenging in the sense that you probably didn't get much love from either side, meaning either from the Latino community that perhaps criticized you for being half white or half gringo and vice versa. That must have been tough. Yeah, I, growing up, it was definitely tough because I never really had a, I never really had a people. I never really had a family. My own family, uh, you know, was falling apart. So the, the family that I was searching for outside of the home, you know, I, I was a, a bit of a pariah in both camps. It served me very well later in ministry, though. What I mean by that is, for example, during 2020, during the pandemic, when politics reigned and uh, unity was difficult, uh, I was able to bring both sides together in a lot of ways. So uh, uh, a different voice would only have been able to speak to one side or the other. And what God allowed me to do during that season was to pull both sides together and keep the church unified in that season. So it was hard growing up, but but in ministry, it's been nothing but a grace, a blessing and a, and a tool for 
uh, for ministry. Your time as a young man, had you gotten involved in gangs at all? Yeah, yeah, one of the larger ones in East L.A. Actually, there was, while I was, for lack of a better word, candidating, prospecting for for this particular club, for this particular gang, there was a, a scary incident that um, ejected me out of that culture, uh, scared my dad. He changed, he made me change high schools, um, which is, which probably saved me from a trajectory in a lot of ways uh, that invariably would have led to probably something um, catastrophic. So, and it was at that high school where I met my, my now wife of 26 years. We think about gangs, I think, often in the context of street violence, gun running, drugs, all of this. And that's from the outside perspective looking in. But from the inside looking out, do they really largely end up serving as almost substitute families? And I raise that question because so often when we hear stories not too dissimilar from yours about young men who find themselves involved in gangs or pledging for a gang, that in a sense what's really attracting them is not that they woke up one day and said, I think I'm going to dedicate myself to a life of crime, or I think, you know, 10 years at Rikers or at, at San Quentin would be good for my health, but rather that, that sense of community and belonging in, in a real sense, they may not articulate it this way, but in a real sense, almost longing for that sense of family that quite often is missing in many families in America today. My goodness, with a divorce rate of over 50%, there's, there's evidence in and of itself. Yeah. You know, I, I completely agree with that. And here, here's what I would say is, you know, especially in in Latino families like mine, where everybody has to work in order to in order to pay the bills. And so that means nobody is at home. And particularly in the 90s, where I grew up as a la as the latchkey generation, you're looking for a family to connect with. Uh, and most street gang culture sees that in young men and, in, in fact, looks for that in young men to pull them in as part of a recruiting strategy. And the reality was I was OK with that because I was looking for a family. I, I think God has written on our hearts the need for community and family. And so I, I looked for family there, did not find what was written on my heart. I looked for family and brotherhood in the military did not totally find what was written on my heart. I looked for family uh, and camaraderie with my staff and in business, did not find what was written on my heart. It wasn't until the local church uh, that I found the full expression of what God was trying to uh, draw me into the whole time. And of course, a big distinction there, too, is that in many of the circumstances where you cite, you were hoping to find that sense of satisfaction. Even yeah. when there is that sense of belonging, it tends to be very transactional. It's fleeting. It's mm -hmm. for the moment. You do this for me, That's I'll do right. that for you, and we'll all feel good together. But the minute one side of that contract is broken, all bets are off. And that is an absolute diametric opposition to what we see demonstrated within Scripture as to what not yep. only family should be, but moreover, what it means to be adopted into the very family of God. And so for a lot of people, I think just that that sense of unconditional love, that unwavering, yep. unconditional love has got to be so overwhelming and ultimately so attractive once a young person or any individual, for that matter, gets introduced to the reality of what that unconditional love looks like coming out of a lifetime of very transactional relationships. 
Yeah, I think that um, the way that I usually say it is this way, that relationships, biblically speaking, are designed to be covenantal in a contractual world. So con- we like contracts. So, for example, in the Old Testament, it talks about contract in the context of terms and conditions. We like terms and conditions. You do this, I'll do this. If you do this, then I'll hold up my end of the deal. But covenantal relationship is whether or not you hold up your end of the deal, I'm still going to love you, serve you, know you, and pursue you, which is a reflection of the gospel in and of itself. So whether it's marriage or whether it's community in the local church, what we're really looking for is covenantal relationships. It's just we have really only been taught and modeled contractual ones. A conversation with Pastor Alan Coleman, Senior Pastor at Bay Hills Church of Richmond. A brief time out. We'll come back to more of our dialogue in just a moment. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back. We're visiting today with Pastor Alan Coleman, Senior Pastor at Bay Hills Church of Richmond. Pastor Coleman, let's pick up the conversation where we left off. How did God pursue you? You talked about the step through growing up, joining the military, moving on to the business world. At some point, there was an encounter. And I'm curious what oh, sort of the steps were in God's pursuit of you. Well, I don't know if we have all day, but the but here's the very shortest answer that I can give. And then you can tell me what, what more you want out of this. When my wife was pregnant with our second child, we knew that he was going to be born with a particular birth defect. Now, this particular birth defect uh, did not carry with it large consequence. It, it carried large potential consequence. So when my son was born, that potential consequence was realized in the form of him losing oxygen at birth. So most of his brain was damaged and destroyed uh, by the time that he was born and we brought him home. So for me, what that triggered in me, what that was starting to pull out of me were things that my wife was wrestling with. What I mean by that is, is my wife, because I didn't know what to do with pain and suffering, my wife had been loved where we happened to live at that time by the local church very well. So she was being pulled into the local church and into a relationship with Jesus. That produced nothing but anger in me, nothing but hostility in me, that there's no way that a good God, if he exists, could allow this type of thing to happen to my son, who at that time was predicted to only live to be maybe two or three, who would never walk, talk, laugh, or smile. And so it was that was the beginning of my journey. As my wife got pulled further and further into the local church, she became instrumental uh, in in getting the in getting Christ to me and getting the gospel to me, which is a very long journey uh, before I finally surrendered. So initially you were and this is not unlike a lot of people that react to these circumstances, you know, purely in a fleshy fashion, a worldly fashion, a, a fashion disconnected from yeah. the reality of Scripture that sees God as the boogeyman or that he can't possibly be a loving God if he would allow something to do something like this to happen. And so therefore that sense of wanting to, uh, wanting to be distant from God, remove yourself from the situation. And that must've been for you also at the time would imagine some, some strong feelings related to your spouse in that she's being pulled one way. You feel as if you're being repelled in the opposite direction. And yet, as much as she's drawing closer to this God, you're wanting to pull 
away, which must have also stirred up some anger, some feelings of not only anger and frustration, but but dare I say it, even almost jealousy in a sense. And I say that from sort of a relational man viewpoint, that there's there's this other thing, quote unquote, that is competing for your wife's attention that you can't practically compete with. I lived a life for a, a long time up to that point where I, I felt like I'm a pretty good guy. Uh, I didn't abandon the girl that I got pregnant and I took care of and raised a family. Uh, I served my country. I, without a college education at that time, I uh, had a pretty lucrative career to then give my family whatever they wanted. Uh, and, uh, uh, and so then this happens. I felt like goodness was something that had been owed to me because I was a pretty good guy. You checked all the right boxes. My wife. Yeah. And so then my wife drifting towards the church and towards Christ felt like, hey, I'm the one who's here. I'm the one that's going to get us out of this. Not not some invisible God who, if he exists, allowed this to happen in the first place. So you're absolutely right when you say it, it, it stirred up lots of things in me until I came to the realization uh, that no one is good. Uh, not at least not from a from a from a moral perspective. What was that breaking point, that surrender point for you like? So the short story is my wife was attending a small group and she got them to conspire to try and get me to attend. And I kept refusing. And uh, so one day they decided, hey, so she says to me, hey, do you want to come to small group? And I said, no. And she says, uh, well, we're making carne asada. And I said, all right, maybe just this one time. Uh, and <laughs> so always uh, the way to a man's heart. <laughs> right that's right. That's right. Uh, and so I, I was introduced at that time to a man named Gary, uh, Gary Boothillier. And what I saw in him in his home, I, I saw him love his wife in a way that I had never seen her experienced modeled. I saw him love his children in a way that I had never seen or experienced modeled. Uh, and so he struck up a friendship with me with no strings attached. He just loved me. But one day it, it became untenable and he had to share. He had to give to me, like, like First Peter says, the explanation for the hope that is in him, the reason that he's the way that he is. And he snuck a Bible into my bag. And on a business trip back out of Atlanta, Georgia, I got caught in a storm. And I went to think I was getting my laptop out of the bag. And I found this Bible that he had bookmarked to the book of Luke, chapter 7, <laughs> which is the story of Simon the Pharisee, the woman who crashes the party with the alabaster jar of perfume and Jesus himself dining at Simon's house. And so to wrap this thing up, um, I thought Gary was trying to get me to relate as I'm on the side of the road reading this story. I thought he was trying to get me to relate to this woman who was a sinner and who was at the end of her rope. And I didn't feel any of those things. Uh, and so I, I, I repudiated Gary on the side of the road under my breath. Like I don't relate to this at all. And, and I must've spent hours in that story off and on as the rain went off and on having to pull over several times and keep reading the story until I had realized what he was, he was trying to get me to relate to Simon, Simon, one guy owes Visa $1,000. Another guy owes Visa a million dollars. Jesus decides to cancel uh, both debts to the credit card company. Who's more grateful? And Simon says, the one with the greater debt canceled. See, Simon, what you don't realize is, is you're just like her. You need me just as much as she does. I know you think you're a pretty good guy. I know you don't think your debt is very big. The point is, is you have a debt irrespective of your perception of its size. 
I left Atlanta one man, and I arrived home a different man. And the reaction by your spouse? Yeah, the story that I usually tell is I'm I'm pacing. I get home from this trip, and I'm pacing behind her to tell her, and she's washing dishes. And uh, she can tell that I have something on my mind by the way that I'm pacing behind her in the dark to tell her something. And finally, I just blurt out, I think I'm a Christian. And uh, she, without skipping a beat, she says, yeah, I've just been waiting for you to figure it out. So her, her she didn't overreact, which I appreciated. It, it actually kind of allowed me to not. She didn't want to put pressure on me to live up to something, I think, is what she was doing. And, you know, it's demonstrative, too, that each of us have to find our own way, right? God has no yeah. stepchildren. We're all adopted in, but direct heirs of the Father. And so we have to yeah. kind of find our own way. And I think she was wise in not pushing you, in a sense, not beating you over the head, and yet being consistent. Although I suspect there was probably several prayer groups that were operating <laughs> in, the, in the background conspiring oh, against oh yeah. you. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was a, it was a full-on conspiracy, yeah. Um, for sake of time, fast forward, if you would, Pastor Coleman, to your decision to leave the business world and uh, to answer the call to the pulpit. Yeah, at the time, uh, I was introduced to, to um, a gentleman who was planning a church and a mutual friend of ours had put us together because he was a gifted communicator, but in his words, he couldn't organize a coat rack. And so what he felt like was that uh, my business acumen would uh, would be helpful in in making that uh, that that church plant successful. And so we struck up a friendship and we planted a church together. And at the time, I was still flying around the country in business and trying to make it work and. Then one day I, I walked into the office and my assistant brought my cup of coffee. She brought me the P&L reports. And I, I remember sitting there and I just an hour came and went without me knowing where I was just praying for the people that we were serving and loving and ministering to. I had missed a meeting. I had missed my deadline for those P&L reports because I'd, I, I just was lost in prayer. And I kind of knew in that moment uh, that. Uh, for me, the next step in my relationship with Christ was to be obedient to what he was calling me to. Uh, and so uh, my wife and I, we, we had no opportunity. Nobody, we don't even know how to get into ministry. All we could do was be faithful to get ourselves ready. So we sold the expensive cars. We pulled out of the house we were building. Uh, and uh, we began to reconcile and prepare our lives in such a way for that ultimate door opening, which would only come about a year later. Uh, to be the executive pastor for that church um, as it continued to grow. As you look back on that transition and, and really your life in general, uh, are, are there moments that you're still surprised by all that God has done? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I, God called a nobody to tell everybody about somebody. And, uh, you know, if you if you go to if any, every time I visit East LA uh, or uh, I speak to old business friends or what you you, you're you're going to do what with your life? You or him? No, 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 not him. Uh, everybody w uh, who knew me would be shocked to know uh, uh, how I have the trajectory of my life and and, and where I'm at today. And uh, of course, the, most the, of all, me. Most of all, me. And you know, the the other mm. irony with that is that in one sense, you're you're not really the first at all uh, to fill this position or or uh, be involved in ministry in this fashion.
A conversation with Pastor Alan Coleman, Senior Pastor Bay Hills Church of Richmond. A brief time out. We'll come back to more of our dialogue in just a moment. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back. We're visiting today with Pastor Alan Coleman, Senior Pastor at Bay Hills Church of Richmond. Pastor Coleman, let me return to our discussion just prior to the break. I think back to Paul. We kind of, I think, today as modern-day believers and look at his contribution to arguably two-thirds of the New Testament and his role in the church and, uh, you know, kind of take it for granted that Paul is one of the, the, the pillars of the foundation of the early church. And yet, if we could get into our time transport and go back and be at a time before his Damascus Road experience, I think we'd say the same thing. You? You? Yeah. Saul? No way. I am just an example that uh, I'm just one in a long line of thugs that God has been reappropriating for his purpose and pleasure. And Paul was the original. Uh, And, you know, maybe that kind of also goes to the heart of the entire gospel message. That for those that perhaps see themselves, and and justifiably so, as unworthy, to suddenly Mm -hmm encounter what it means to truly walk in relationship with very God himself or over that slow process. And I think it is a process. Paul talks about work out your salvation. I think it's a process as we begin to slowly absorb the enormity of Christ's love on the cross and that sacrifice and what it means. I mean, here we've just recently come through Arguably one of the most important dates on the Christian calendar, a Good Friday and, of course, Resurrection or Easter Sunday. And in being reminded yes. of the amount of pain that, that not only Christ held for us, but it clearly pained the heart of the Father, too. And yet yes. it, it demonstrates that the love that God has for his creation was even more than the pain that he suffered for putting his son out there to make the ultimate sacrifice for all of us. And boy, you think about that level of love. There is no relationship on the horizontal plane that even begins. I don't care how much you love your wife and how much she loves you. There is no relationship on the horizontal plane that begins to even come close to 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 paralleling that level of love. And I think as, as as people begin to be exposed by the Holy Spirit to all of that, um, is it any wonder then that eventually we, we, we go fleeing into the arms of Jesus, recognizing that there is something there that he offers us that we can find nowhere else? Yeah, I mean, the gospel and to end past, present, and future tense has to belong all to him and, and be solely and only all his work, lest we be tempted uh, to in pride and self-righteousness believe that we contribute anything other than our response uh, to the gospel itself. And once we get that, once we understand end to end that the gospel is his, then uh, then guys, then uh, uh, people with my history who feel like they're not worthy uh, understand the full implications of the cross and then ultimately the resurrection in a way that allows us to come now worthy in faith to God. Uh, and then and then on the other side of it, people who say, well, I don't have much of a story. I don't really feel like he he, he saved me very much. And, and I always say, no, no, you're on the same plane. You got to get to the same place with the gospel. Because, like, think about every natural inclination you have, every natural, natural inclination in your heart. Now, take that to its logical end. 
who would that person have become without Jesus? And that's who he saved you from. Uh, he saved you future tense in that way, in the same ways that he has saved me past tense. Yeah, and, and uh, so a, you have a story. And a very important point that you make, Pastor, because so often we, we will hear from people that will say, well, yeah, but I, you know, I, I never did drugs. I never robbed a bank. I never beat my wife. I never kicked the dog. I don't have any story. And I would argue there are dynamic stories like yours demonstrative of what God has saved us from, and there are other dynamic yeah. stories in other people demonstrative of what God has kept us from. But at the end of the day, Amen. that that reward for our sin nature, it's there, irrespective yeah. of our backgrounds, how good we are, how bad we were, irrespective of that, there is the same recompense of reward for the penalties of sin and when we think about that and put that into perspective as to ultimately what God has done in each and every one of our lives that have surrendered to him, wow, that ought to blow our minds. That's right. Both, both, both the woman and Simon were invited onto the same plane with Jesus in terms that they both were asked to respond irrespective of whatever debt they perceived they carried with them coming into the relationship. Walk us through the um, sort of we're going to jump forward here in time here. Walk us through the trajectory that brought you to Pastor Bay Hills Church in Richmond. Well, I've been in the Bay Area about 15 years now. Um, uh, I, um, I, I love the Bay Area and have remained in the Bay Area because of my hope for the Bay Area and because of what I see in the Bay Area. And uh, before that, I spent a considerable amount of time in Marin County, which is the least church county in America, and learned a tremendous amount uh, 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 from being in a post-church, almost akin to Western Europe context. Uh, in, uh, and I have taken that with me into the East Bay, which is aesthetically more in line with the way that God has shaped me and wired me to do ministry, particularly with my story. You know, the East Bay is about the, cl the, the closest thing that I've ever experienced in, the, in Northern California to East L.A., um, uh, where you have high diversity. And I don't just mean race. I mean uh, uh, socioeconomic diversity, where the, where the tech executive uh, and the blue-collar Chevron worker uh, are working uh, together for the gospel in the same row on Sunday morning, um, which is where I wanted to be. Um, and so uh, I have very high hopes for what I'm seeing culturally, historically, starting to emerge here in the Bay Area. Uh, and then the East Bay in particular, man, that's just that's the right place to put an old thug. So I'm very happy to be there. <laughs> Uh, you know, it's interesting. You travel the world and you'll hear comments from believers elsewhere that have never been to the United States, but have heard the stories. And especially when you use the phrase San Francisco Bay Area, there, there's immediately yeah. I've often find this reaction of, oh, San Francisco, my goodness. You know, this is the modern equivalent of Sodom and Gomorrah on and on the list goes. It's as if God has completely abandoned everything about the Bay. And yet, ironically, as you talk about the uniqueness of the similarities between the East Bay, Bay and, and Southern Cal parts of Southern California, I think there's also another level of uniqueness, and that is that I don't know that there's any level of diversity any greater than here in the San Francisco Bay Area, maybe even rivaling New York. I mean, my goodness, 
Yeah. It wasn't that long ago. If you wanted to reach the world for Christ, that meant having to get a visa, buy an airplane ticket, raise support, and go be a missionary somewhere. Now today, God has literally brought the world to our doorstep. And what a great opportunity to not only reach every tribe, every tongue, but then, Pastor, you speak to the, the interesting dichotomy of the blue-collar worker and the white-collar worker, maybe not only sitting in the same pews together, but in the San Francisco Bay Area, they may live only a few blocks apart. It isn't unusual to find a neighborhood anywhere right. in the San Francisco Bay Area where in the, the low-level section of the city, you got the homes that are worth, you know, in a million dollars. And in the high section uh, hills of that city, that very same city, you've got homes that are worth eight, ten, twelve, fifteen million dollars and north. So it's interesting. I live in one of those neighborhoods. See, there you on, are. On the low side of my neighborhood is, it's all Hispanic. And on the high side of my neighborhood right now is, uh, uh, is a little bit is the diversity level is different, but the socioeconomic differences are ginormous. Oh, and charts. I can hit those houses with a rock from my house. Yeah, so I think it it, it really gives us a bit of a glimpse into <clears throat> the unique opportunity that the Lord has afforded all of us living here and calling the San Francisco Bay Area home. That there are some unique ministry opportunities. Does that say to you then, when people hear about the crime statistics and things of this sort, and and sometimes even sort of write off the Bay Area? spiritually, so to speak, that uh, that's really a, a false viewpoint, that in fact, uh, this is this is a part of the world, certainly my belief is, this is a part of a world that contrary to the notion of God having abandoned it, I believe God uniquely has his hand on it because of the way in which we have been trendsetters, not only nationally, but globally for decades. Th- think of any trend, and you can almost bet it has its roots right here at home in the Bay Area. Well, that's what kept me in the Bay Area. So the, the, one of the largest studies ever done was called the American Church Research Project. It involved 300,000 churches. And the, the, one of the, the, the aim and ambition of that study was to find what is the epicenter of post-church America in the United States. And they summarized their findings into a book called The American Church in Crisis. And what they determined is that the epicenter, in other words, where all other places trend to, both in context of the church and spiritually, is the Bay Area in Northern California. Now, why is that important? Is that a reason to leave? Well, no, because historically we have exported all of our best Christians everywhere else. The Bay Area has not been a high import area, both because of cost of living and for the reasons that I just mentioned. But if we keep exporting all of our strongest believers, all of our most committed believers to other parts of the country, then we do give ground in a place that has national implications, national influence in terms of spiritual and church trajectory. And so the second thing that I would say is that I think the Bay Area, what's really encouraging to me about the Bay Area is I'm still hearing pastors use old language, postmodern, post-church. I don't think we're on that side of the curve anymore. I think we are pre-church now. Uh, we're just the rest of the nation is is in the post-church category, but particularly California and Northern California is pre-church. And what I mean by that is is you are meeting people and speaking to people. At least I am, who have never heard the gospel. They've heard of the gospel, but they've never heard the gospel in their lives. Post-church means they have heard it. And rejected it. That's not the case here in the Bay Area. They just never flat out heard it. And when they hear it for the first time, I'm encouraged by the way people are responding to it. We've baptized 60 people in six months 
at Bay Hills because people are responding to the gospel in ways that I have never seen uh, in the last two decades. You know, and I think it also, Pastor Coleman, speaks to the notion that oftentimes there is a tendency for us because of just the way our, our DNA as Americans is structured that we we use as the yardstick how big things are, whether that is yeah. you know how big your bottom line is at the corporation, how many people showed up to the football game on Sunday, how many tickets that you sell, how big was attendance at church on Sunday. And That's it's right. easy to say, let's throw a, a, a dart at the map and find a place where we know is very fertile soil. It's easy work. We can go down there, plant a church. And if we play our cards right, so to speak, 10,000 people will be showing up. Um, but there's a big difference between going to where it's it's there, there's a sense of easiness versus a sense of where the greatest need is. And I think if you look at the mm-hmm. Bay Area, clearly we look around us and see that there is the greatest need here. And I am so thrilled that you make the emphasis on the point that as much as there would be this argument of, yes, and I've heard it too, postmodern, post-Christian, as opposed to pre-church, because I think we are on the cusp. Mm-hmm. When you talk to so mm-hmm. many people that say, yeah, I was not raised in the church, I'm, I'm in the nun category, right? N-O-N-E. And therefore, the opportunity from scratch to introduce somebody to even the very concept of God himself. And to hear the way people will absorb this like a sponge. How could we not but mm-hmm. view this as not being on mm-hmm. the backside, but rather on the leading edge of God getting ready to That's do right. something pretty exciting? You're, you're seeing that generationally, too, because gen, so uh, millennials uh, uh, who had problems with uh, absolute truth, with uh um, anything that represented organizational structure, you're, you're, you're seeing that way of thinking being repudiated by the next generation. Gen Z has more in common with the greatest generation than any other generation since. They have, they, they're already planning for retirement, many of them, in the way that they think in their 20s. Uh, they have no problems with absolute truth. Uh, and they have no problems with uh, with organizational meaning. So the, the church isn't a threat to them as though it's an organization that they don't have those same uh, thinking patterns. And so Gen Z, which is the youngest generation, uh, is the most hopeful generation in a long time with respect to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So there are lots of reasons to be excited about the Bay Area in particular, in my opinion. And clearly some of the evidence is what God is doing right there at Bay Hills Church. A conversation with Pastor Alan Coleman, Senior Pastor at Bay Hills Church of Richmond. A brief time out. We'll come back to more of our dialogue in just a moment. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back. We're visiting today with Pastor Alan Coleman, Senior Pastor at Bay Hills Church of Richmond. Let's pivot for a moment to what the Lord is doing. For folks that have been eavesdropping on our conversation that might say, wow, I really like what pastors had to share today. Tell us a bit more about what God is doing at Bay Hills. You know, when I was looking for a new home, God gave me this word that I knew he was asking me to take into this next ministry. And the word was revival. And then the word started showing up everywhere. Um, and I was like, hey, wait a minute. I had the word before it started becoming in vogue again. Uh, that's a tongue in cheek. I don't really mean that. But uh, but we really do hook, line and sinker. We buy into this idea that at Bay Hills right now, what we are experiencing and what is going through is revival and not revival, just experience detached from 
real transformation, real holiness. Uh, 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 we're talking about sustainable, viable growth in the church. Uh, we're, we're not only on the baptism side, people are becoming moving forward in their next steps with Jesus, but then also on the discipleship side, we're seeing revivalistic things as well, where it's, uh, where it's not just, oh, the church is growing numerically. That's all fine and good. But, but what the kind of growth that we're seeing is not just uh, a, a numerical growth, but a commitment growth, especially on the other side of um, on, on COVID as people start have started to return. That's exciting because, you know, so often the church gets accused, and I think perhaps on occasions justifiably so, as being a mile wide and only an inch, an inch deep. And so it's not yeah. just a matter, again, back to that example of the way we tend in, in, in America to measure success. It all has to have a number, uh, but, but you can't assign a number to spiritual growth. Uh, but that yeah. sense of people deepening in their relationship, their faith walk with God and what that means. And, and ultimately that, that bigger process of making disciples is really, at, I think, the heart. If we can see an emphasis on spiritual growth, and as people are then faithful to the Lord and to the Word as He is to us, then I think the numeric growth will become just a natural outgrowth. It'll become a byproduct of that spiritual growth of what it means to truly tertiary, be almost. Yeah. yeah, indeed. So, yeah, um, I think I think that uh, revivalistic things or any church movement hinges on what you just said, which is that uh, as people increase in discipleship, uh, which then increases in things like uh, 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 holiness. Then what? Then what always increases is multiplication. Because if you don't grow people deeper, then what ends up happening is is you stunt any any growth on the other side of that. Because you can only multiply, you know, how loud the pulpit is, for example, um, versus uh, true organic, sustainable growth in a very hard soiled place like the Bay Area, which comes through multiplication of disciples who make disciples who make disciples, and so on. It is the fundamental difference between going to church and being the church. Not just a part of it, being the church. Pastor Coleman, uh, tell us a bit about service times and uh, some of the ministerial offerings available for folks here in the Bay Area at Bay Hills Church. Well, Bay Hills meets every Sunday at 9 and 11, um, and uh, we meet uh, in Richmond uh, at Hilltop on Close Way. Uh, so we're in a strip mall, which we love because it sort of puts us in the public square. Uh, we very often have people uh, who will just wander in from the neighboring businesses uh, trying to figure out what's going on in the middle of this strip mall. Um, and uh, uh, we have uh, we also have Celebrate Recovery that meets uh, on a weekly basis. Um, uh, we have local missionaries that we support. We have an ongoing partnership with the Bay Area Rescue Mission that we're involved with. Um, uh, we are uh, um, and uh, and then obviously we have uh, a pretty we have pretty vibrant outreach uh, opportunities. Uh, that are pretty unique to our church. So uh, we do, for example, two large community outreach events um, in the East Bay because uh, we're trying to reverse the narrative of the local church in the in the in the Bay Area, uh, where our objective is to serve, love, and know our community. One's called Extravaganza, which just happened this last Saturday, which is the brainchild and organizational. Uh, 
uh, responsibility of our kids ministry director and the other one is fall fest which happens in the fall uh extravaganza uh, the largest that event has ever been historically is four thousand people which is big we have it on a high school campus the fact that they let us come onto the high school campus to love and serve the community is crazy uh, this last Saturday, there were 10,000 people from the community there. Now, that is a better number than however many people show up on Sunday morning. That our reach into the community, uh, uh, you know, surpassed five digits was exceptional to me because I'm pretty, I'm an evangelist first, pastor second. And, uh, and that was very, very exciting. Yeah, I would imagine looking at numbers like that, and again, we're putting this in perspective, uh, in terms of outreach, that means a lot. And that, that must really not only mm. delight the heart of the Lord, obviously, but delight your heart as well to see the way the community is responding that way and the visibility of the church. Because oftentimes we get a, you know, we get a bad rap, and a lot of times it's because of, you know, we don't always yes. behave the way we ought to as believers. Yes. And so to see that the community turn out to something like that and, and begin to see, just that that starting touch, you know, that that begins that that opportunity at dialogue and relational outreach, and then ultimately what it means to make disciples. That's exciting stuff. Um, I want to remind folks that they want to get more information about the ministry of Bay Hills Church. Again, they're meeting Sundays at nine and eleven a.m. at four thousand Klaus Way in Richmond. Information available. You can call them directly at 510-223-2500. That's five one zero two two three twenty five hundred. Or easier still, online at bayhills.net. That's bayhills.net. Pastor Alan Coleman, we appreciate the time today. It, it seems to be fleeting, but we'll get a chance, hopefully, to visit with you again real soon. I am so grateful for this time. God bless you and everything that you do. We're so thankful. That's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.